Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 28. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wines into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gives some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Amen. Thank you, Joy. Good evening. Uh, my name's Libby. If you don't uh, know me, I'm one of the clergy here with Paul and Dave and Joe. Uh, it's a joy to be unpacking this really rich passage uh, with you this evening. It's from Mark chapter 4. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible app or a real-life Bible in front of you, to have it open, because uh, we're going to be looking at this passage over the next few minutes. It's Mark, I said chapter 4, Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, but I'll guide us through it in a few moments. Uh, we love a chat at the 7 o'clock service, so we're just going to have a little chat for a minute or two. Uh, don't worry if you don't know the person that sat next to you, uh, it's not a difficult question. But I just wonder whether for 30 seconds you can have a chat with somebody you're sat next to about what you would say are the defining words that might describe the past two or three years, or words that have become like really popular in our culture. So what words might define uh, the last couple of years? Have a chat for a moment. Oh. 
Okay, I told you you're having 30 seconds. Uh, that is your 30 seconds up. But I'd love us uh, to hear just some of the words uh, that we've been chatting about with our neighbor. So what words would you say have maybe defined the last two or three years or have been really prominent in culture for the last couple of years? Just shout out, don't be ashamed, speak really loudly. Go for it, Mark, what was yours? He's I'm, oh, I thought you were telling me. <laughs> I was like, I'm not on Zoom, Mark. Uh, I'm on mute. You're on mute. Okay, great. That's actually not one word, but yeah, we'll forgive you. Anybody else? Unprecedented. Sorry? Uncharted. Overwhelming. Lockdown. War. Walk. Walk. Community, mental health, crisis. Great, they're all a bit depressing, aren't they? Apart from community as well. Uh, sorry? Netflix, absolutely. I'm so with you on that as well. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about words like woke. I don't really understand what woke is. When I read an article where it's mentioned, I have to go back to Google to find out again what it's about. Post-truth. Uh, as well, Boris. Um, uncertainty, we might say. I actually Googled what some of the dictionaries reported as being like the word that defined a year. And the Webster's Dictionary said that the word that defined 2021 was vaccine. Nobody said that. And uh, the Cambridge English Dictionary said that the word that defined 2021 was perseverance as well. Um, if we look slightly beyond the last two or three years, uh, perhaps to words that have defined the 21st century so far, I was thinking about what words might define the 21st century uh, so far. And authenticity is one of those words that you hear being spoken of all the time. We're told that authenticity is really important. We want to be authentic, be who you are, be real, be honest to who you are. I read a consumer survey uh, which found that authenticity is more important to, uh, than ever in terms of uh, influencing people's brand choice. Uh, guess what the most authentic brands are in, in the view of this consumer survey? Any ideas? McDonald's, that is quite high up. It's about number five or six. Yeah. Sorry? Heinz, no. I, do you know what? I think it might have been an American survey, and they don't get Heinz in the US. I'll tell you. Okay. Uh, BMW, Apple, Amazon, Disney. Anyway. Um, and why do people think that these brands are, are authentic? Because that they believe that these companies are not trying to be something that they are not. But they recognize, these companies recognize who they are and what they do best and what com customers value most about that brand. And if you think about our culture, the society that we all live in, on the one hand, it demands authenticity from us, doesn't it? It says, be real, be honest, be transparent, be true to who you are. You know, don't settle uh, for cheap imitations. Go after the real deal. 
And if you have a view, express it. Be authentic to who you are. And yet, on the other hand, we live with a tension. Because if you think about the last four or five years, and this tension might have been exacerbated by uh, Boris Johnson, by a certain president of the United States that was, and maybe by Brexit as well, um, and maybe progressive secularism. There's this powerful voice which is also saying to us in our other ear, unless you agree with me, then what you say is wrong. What you believe is wrong. Your political views, they're wrong if they don't believe, uh, agree with mine. You look wrong. You voted for the wrong thing. Your authenticity, therefore, is only okay if it agrees with mine. And so we can feel like we're in this uh, vulnerable place of tension where we're challenged to be authentic, but only if we comply with the, the popular view of what that authenticity is actually allowed to look like. And that is particularly tricky, I think, if you're a Christian. Because as Christians, we're called to live out the good news, the gospel of Jesus, to be authentic to our beliefs in our words and through our actions. But these words and actions and beliefs can often find themselves at odds with the words and the actions of the, uh, that the world holds, that the secular majority holds. And so being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, can sometimes feel like it sort of scratches up every so often against what the world says being authentic is. How often have you felt you couldn't speak up because your Christian view on something might sound completely out of kilter with what we're told is the right way? How often have you seen something on social media and you've just thought, oh, that just doesn't feel right. I can't believe everybody's agreeing and liking or whatever with this. But you don't feel able to say uh, something that's not along the lines of what everybody else is saying. And so we keep silent. And what we're experiencing, it's nothing new. All the way through the Gospels of Jesus, we find Jesus having to be authentic to who he is as the Son of God and living his life and teaching and doing miracles and being, uh, the, the, bringing in the kingdom of God because that is why he was sent. But all the time, he's bashing up against the popular view of the time. And as we see in this passage of Scripture, the people who are holding the view that, that he bashes up against so often are the Pharisees because they believe that they hold the power. They hold the authentic, true religion. They think that they believe they know what life should really look like. And it's this whole tension that Jesus is experiencing is highlighted in these three encounters uh, that Jesus has in Mark chapter 2. So Jesus is bringing in, if you like, a new thing. 
the good, the good, the exciting, the explosive news of the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, are saying, but Jesus, this doesn't, just doesn't fit in uh, within, in the box of what we believe doing religion looks like. We don't believe you fit in with our idea of who the Messiah is going to be. You can't do that. You can't hang out with these people. Because in their minds, they've got religion, an authentic religion, all neatly tied up and wrapped up in a neat passage. And the message of Jesus is completely blowing apart what they believe is authentic religion. And so we see here what happens when Jesus scratches up against the Pharisees in different situations. So when Jesus uh, is enjoying dinner at Levi, the tax collector's house, the Pharisees are absolutely horrified that he's hanging out with somebody like Levi. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then a bit later, then they pick up on the fact that John the Baptist disciples, his followers, and the Pharisees' followers, they're fasting because that's what you're told to do. It's part of the rules and regulations uh, in, in accordance with the Old uh, Testament law. But Jesus' disciples aren't doing that. And when Jesus' disciples were found uh, to be picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, you rest on the Sabbath, you definitely don't walk through fields and pick grain. They ask, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds in verse 22 by saying this. It's a bit of a weird thing. He says, you can't fit new wine into old wineskins. Jesus is saying, you can't fit what I'm doing, bringing in the kingdom of God into your existing rules. Those rules that, that have orientated our way of thinking and living so, for so long. You might be wondering why there is YouTube on a TV on the screen. And I was thinking about an illustration of what like, this might be like. It'd be a bit like you can't stream YouTube on a TV set from the 1960s, can you? Because the old and the new just don't fit together. They're incompatible with each other. And that's basically what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the new wine, the best, the most incredible thing. And you can't put that into old wineskin. New wine has to be put into new wine bottles. We'll talk about this in a few moments' time. So let's unpack a bit more of what this new, authentic way of life in the kingdom of God, as Jesus brings it in, looks like. So firstly, we have this encounter between Jesus and Levi, the tax collector. Mark 2, verse 14. We find out that Levi's job choice uh, means that uh, many in the Jewish community would see him as having sold out the devil. He's a tax collector. It, it would be a bit like um, a, an ardent Hibs supporter in Edinburgh taking a job with hearts, okay? You just wouldn't sell out to the other side in that way. But that's what people believe the tax collectors in this time had done. They sold out to the other, the other side. They've undermined all their principles. Being a tax collector meant Levi was working for the Romans, the other side, the occupying force. 
And so he would have been shunned by the community, the Jewish community he lived in. And somehow, Jesus has become aware of this man, Levi, aware of him sat in his little tax-collecting booth on the road, demanding tolls as people uh, pass by him. But as we saw with the fishermen in Mark chapter 1, Jesus sees Levi. This word we translate as sees implies that Jesus gazed intently or examined him closely. And so when he calls Levi, he knows exactly who he's getting. But he still calls Levi. Mark says, he says, come and follow me. And Levi gets up and follows Jesus. Luke's gospel, when he writes about this account, he tells us that Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. This was like a massive deal. By leaving his job, he would have burnt his bridges with the Romans forever. The Romans uh, were not going to have him back if he changed his mind. And I think he probably saw uh, a reality and an authenticity in Jesus, something that he hadn't seen in his fellow Jews, who were always criticizing him and calling him a sinner, even though he probably knew that what they did and said behind closed doors didn't comply with the Jewish law either. And so he goes all in with Jesus. He leaves everything and he follows him. I think in the UK, we can have like this general tendency uh, to keep our options open. Who's like this? You're like, yeah, I'm one of those people. I always like to keep my options open before I uh, agree to something. Uh, We resist committing uh, to people or going to an event or whatever until we're completely convinced that maybe there aren't any other options. But Levi saw something in Jesus, which means he got up and left everything immediately and followed Jesus. He didn't like go up and and dip his toe in the water, you know, hang out with Jesus for a little bit and then just go back again uh, to his own life. He says, I will follow you. He doesn't say, you know, I'll follow you on a Sunday uh, and maybe on a Tuesday when I'm in my connect group or, or when I'm in a pickle and I really need some help. No, once Levi decided to follow Jesus, he goes all in. I wonder if there's a challenge here for some of us on that. And so Levi, uh, being all in, throws a banquet for Jesus, Mark tells us. And did you notice who else he invites? Verse 15. He invites other people like himself. He invites tax collectors and sinners, we're told. I love that because basically he's inviting his work community to have dinner with Jesus. These people are his work colleagues, people like him, people who are also viewed as outcasts by everyone else. And he invites them to come to his house and have dinner with Jesus. I wonder who is your community? Is it your work colleagues? Is it the people that you sit with on a lunchtime and eat your Tesco meal deal with? Is it the person that you always encounter in the corridor and you have a little chat with? Is it the people in your university flat? Are these the ones who maybe you can share Jesus with in an easier way like Levi did? Who are your community you'd invite for dinner with Jesus?
And this is just a really normal event. Jesus is just having dinner at someone's house. And yet it causes massive consternation. Did you notice? Because when the Pharisees see what Jesus was doing, eating dinner with tax collectors, uh, verse 16 uh, tells us, they asked his disciples, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? What is happening right before their eyes? It doesn't fit into any uh, of their old version of what God in a box looks like. What he's seeing doesn't fit in with his idea, their ideas of what authentically following God and obeying the rules looks like. Jesus seems to be blowing apart before their eyes any expectations of what real followers of God do. But Jesus hears them and responds in verse 17. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's basically saying this. You know, doctors, they can't do their work, can they? Uh, They cannot fulfill the purpose of their job in a room full of people who are completely well. You can't really be a doctor in a room full of well people. You need to be among sick people to actually do the job of being a doctor. And Jesus is saying, if my job then is to call sinners to repentance, then I have to hang out with sinners. In our entrance here at P's and G's, we have this big banner and we have these mats on the floor that say, everyone welcome here. That's because everyone is welcome here in this church family. However, broken or together you are, whatever your background and whatever you've come from. And that door, that big red door that you walk through, it is not some sort of like airport style scanner uh, which scans you on your way in uh, for sin because ultimately we're all unworthy. We're all sinners in the process of being made saints. Robert Munger puts it like this, The church is the only organization in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. We're all unworthy. But in a radical demonstration of immense love and grace, Jesus says to each one of us who he sees, he says, come and follow me. To all intents and purposes, he's saying, you're all welcome here with me. Now, that doesn't mean we're called to to follow him and carry on regardless. No, because he also calls us to repentance. He calls us to be transformed time and again by him. He calls us to leave a life of sin, which means giving up things in our life which are not leading us to a life of holiness. And this isn't very woke, is it? You know, repentance, letting God transform you, is not what the world believes in. Because it just doesn't fit in uh, with the ideology which tells you that to be happy and to be content, 
You just have to do and be whatever makes you happy and more of your authentic self. But this worldview, there are so many problems with it, aren't there? Firstly, if it's okay to actually do and be whatever you want to be, to be your authentic self, it assumes there's no choice we can make that might have a negative effect on our own well-being or on the lives of others, let alone anybody else in the world. And yet we know, we all know, that that's not the case. It also ignores the fact that God created us for a greater purpose than our own individual happiness. Because God knows how best we're to exist as humans. And that is in relationship with him and in relationship with other people and to the world that we live in. And so if we choose to ignore all that, to ignore the sort of blueprint that God has given us for how best we're to live our lives and we just do whatever makes us feel good or feels right, we often cause hurt to ourselves and other people and God. Paul goes on in uh, 2 Corinthians and says this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. If you've decided to follow Jesus, the old has gone and the new is here. Jesus changes us. He doesn't leave us the same. The old has gone, the new is here. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. When I was a student many years ago, when I was an undergraduate, I lived in a really infamous student house. I don't know whether it's like this in Edinburgh, but in, um, I was at Lancaster University for my uh, undergraduate degree, and um, there was this house, 10 Dallas Road, uh, and it was the infamous student house, and I lived in it, uh, and it was brilliant, and about seven of us lived there for two years, and we loved it. But I remember my mum coming to visit uh, for the first time and she sort of like came in, she was really friendly, she probably bought us loads of stuff because that's what she was like and uh, she came in and said hello to all my friends and then she did that thing where she sort of looked around and went, hmm, yeah. And she was basically horrified and took me to one side and went, this is vile, this is a vile place, Libby. I can't believe you live in this squalor and I was like, but it's lovely, it's lovely. I don't know what your problem was. And then she started like pointing out why she thought it was vile. And I started to look a bit closer and the fridge was minging. The whole kitchen was completely gross. I did wonder why we had slugs on the floor every morning. Uh, I can't think that we had vacuumed since we'd moved in, and we'd been in about three or four months at this point, and there were seven of us living there, and the bathroom was absolutely filthy. Now it's the thing that literally makes a little lump come into my throat thinking about that bathroom. But because it, it, I, I was living in it every day, I just hadn't noticed it. I just hadn't noticed how vile it was. The Pharisees were, were physically close to Jesus, and yet they couldn't see what he was doing 
and what he was saying. They couldn't see who he was and that he was being God's love in action. He was being God amongst them right there and they couldn't see the wood for the trees. And I wonder if sometimes we don't realize how radically explosive and exciting the good news of Jesus is for ourselves and our friends and this world today because we're so assimilated to the world that we live in that we either water down Jesus to make him more palatable or we perhaps stick a whole load of rules and regulations onto him to try and contain him in a box a little bit like the Pharisees were trying to do. And so maybe the challenge from this passage to us is that we need to recapture the real, authentic Jesus, who is good news, whose message and life and death and resurrection is more powerful and brings more transformation to our lives as individuals and to this world than anything the world has ever known. Also, just going back to that point about how Levi left his life to follow Jesus and then immediately invited other people round to meet Jesus. I find that really striking and a real challenge because his faith is authentic and he desperately wants his mates to be saved by Jesus too. And so maybe we need to be challenged or go away and think further about this. And think, how can we be the same in our context today? How can we maybe just dig into Scripture more or in our prayer life, ask the Holy Spirit to fill us again so that we get more excited again about what Jesus has done in our lives? How can we invite our friends, our work colleagues in? Maybe we need to invite them out for a drink or have a party. And have those honest conversations, the ones that are really important to us and we believe are really important to other people too. Let's get excited about the opportunity of inviting our work colleagues or our uni mates along to Alpha or to church on a Sunday evening with us. People need Jesus to save them because ultimately what this world offers, the alternative isn't really as authentic as it might appear on the outside. So let's be authentic followers of Jesus, who with love and compassion and incredible grace live out the good news of Jesus to the world we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Just in this moment of quiet, why don't you just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you? To maybe bring a word into your mind or the face of somebody he wants you to be praying for or to be reaching out to or sharing your faith with. So let's just be quiet for a moment and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to me? Who do you want me to be praying for? Who do you want me to invite to something?
And for those of us who perhaps are struggling to get excited about being followers of Jesus at the moment for whatever reason, Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and ignite that spark in our heart and our mind again. That we might recognize how explosive and how radical your good news, your offer of salvation to all of us is and and how you can transform our hearts and our lives as well as the people around us and this world that we live in. Father God, set us on fire again with love for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.